going to start by uh, showing you a statement. You are a sinner. You are a sinner. How do you, how do you react? What's your immediate reaction when you see that on the screen, when you hear me saying that to you? Maybe it's outrage. So how dare you say that to me? How dare you put a nice, big, bold font on the screen and a finger pointing at you, uh, deliberately you know, trying to get your back up in some respects? Maybe it's outrage. Maybe it's just, so what? Just ignore it. Just, you, you scoff at it. Think, well, don't be ridiculous. I don't believe in God. I certainly don't believe in, in some sort of moral standard that God has that I, I've sort of fallen short of. Maybe you try and justify yourself somehow. And you think, well, yeah, but, but I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as him or her. Maybe that your first reaction is fear. Because you go, well, I know I'm a sinner and, and I'm scared because I know I can never be good enough and I don't know what to do. Or maybe it's just humility saying, yes, I'm a sinner and that's why I need Jesus. You know your own heart. You know your reaction uh, for myself. When I see something like that, I think my instant reaction is to try and justify myself. Maybe a tinge of the fear kind of element coming in as well. I know, you know, that, that, that's where I go, perhaps. But the reality is, when we stop for a moment, when we, we, we really think and, and examine our hearts and what's going on inside us, we realise, don't we, that there are depths of sin inside of us that no one really knows about. That is the, the bleak reality that we face, that, that we seem intent on refusing God's goodness, on, on turning away from him in all sorts of ways. We just can't seem to get rid of our sin. Can anything be done to to deal with this awful situation we find ourselves in? That's why we need this this passage, actually, today. God has lots to say to us through it, I believe. If you were here last week, we were uh, looking at the first nine of the the ten plagues that that are unleashed on Egypt. Uh, We saw how Moses was sent by God to deliver a message to Pharaoh, to let his people go. And God reveals his great glory and his power, that he is the true God, as these these plagues are carried out. He reveals who his people are, because the Israelites are protected. It's very clear who who he is here to rescue. But we see the suffering of the Egyptians, we see how severe it is for them. And the plagues get worse and worse, and everyone's pleading with Pharaoh and saying, look, come on, let the Israelites go, can't you see that Egypt is ruined? But would, when would Pharaoh relent? That's the question. Let's just see how it ends. If you have a look at the end of chapter 10, uh, before our passage, chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. It's a really bitter end, isn't it? After everything that's happened, Pharaoh just says, get out, I don't want to see you again. It's a bit confusing, though, because in the middle of chapter 11, we see that Moses is, is back there with Pharaoh, talking to Pharaoh again. Uh, but the simple explanation is, obviously, there's no chapter headings in, uh, in the original text of the Bible. Uh, and it's basically, Moses hasn't left yet. There's a little chunk in, in verses 1 to 3, kind of what happened in the past, and then Moses goes, you know, passes on the message again to Pharaoh. He leaves in verse 8, you see that. Now, we read a lot of the chapter, there's lots in this. We're going to focus on 
the real big headlines, I believe, uh, of what this passage has to say to us. And here's the first one. Sin deserves God's righteous anger and judgment. Sin deserves God's righteous anger and judgment. Let's look at verse, look at 11 verse 4 with me. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go through Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. And then see when he leaves at the end of verse 8, Moses, hot with anger, leaves Pharaoh. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Hot with anger. He's burning with anger there. He is God's messenger. It's as if he's expressing God's anger at the situation as he leaves. God is angry here. God, God is angry at the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, at this stubborn refusal to let his people go, at the injustice his people are facing, at the depth of sin we, we see here. Pharaoh set himself up against God. And now we will see that he will face the consequences of that. This destructive plague is coming. And it says a lot about God's judgment. Three quick things we see about God's judgment. Firstly, we see that God judges everyone. God judges everyone. We see that at the end of the chapter, when when it actually happens, verse 29. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the prisoner. It didn't matter whether you were a government official or a street sweeper, your eldest son died that night. Whether, whatever family connections you might have had, whatever achievements and status, whatever you, know, you, you looked, however good they might have appeared to the world, they were useless before God's judgment. Everyone was kind of on the same level and laid bare. God judges his enemies without distinction here. Everyone. And that's always been the case, and that's still true today. Anyone not trusting in the Lord Jesus will sadly face his judgments. There's no distinction. Secondly, God's judgment is awful. God's judgment is awful. Look at the outcome at the end of verse 13. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the worst thing that has ever happened in Egypt. The worst wailing. The firstborn sons had died. They, you know, they were the, culturally the, the, the most important son, the kind of hope of the family. They were all dead. Can you just imagine that happening today? Imagine that happening in Kenilworth. Happening on your street. You wake up in the morning and you hear this wailing and you realise your son has died. And then you, you go into the street and you meet your neighbours with tears on their faces, crying, why? And then street after street, road after road, throughout the whole country, is repeated. The worst ever wailing filled the land. It's awful. It is an awful thing. It's hard perhaps to comprehend. But the reality is that actually the ultimate judgement that is coming will, will be worse. You look at what Jesus preaches, you go through the Gospels, Jesus talks about hell a lot. His parables and his teaching, he, he was passionate about saying to people, you know, do what it takes not to go there. Trust in me, he says, 
He described it as a burning furnace, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth. It's awful. It's very clear. Jesus is saying this is not something we should treat lightly. And we do, don't we? We tend to forget about it or gloss over it or or treat it. Just not really think about it. It is an appalling thing to face the righteous anger of a holy God. God judges his enemies awfully and without distinction. And then thirdly, God's judgment is fair. God's judgment is fair. The plagues that were unleashed on Egypt were were a fair punishment for the sins of the Egyptians. Remember right at the start of the book, in the first couple of chapters, we see this command from Pharaoh to kill all of the Israelite boys. To, 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 To kill them all as soon as they were born. And now we see there's this, this sense of justice here that actually the firstborn sons of Egypt are the ones that were dying in response. And there's an interesting parallel. The wailing that goes up from the Egyptians, that the pain they're experiencing, it's as if it was matching the, the, the wailing that was going up from the Israelites in their slavery. The same word is used in chapter 3, verse 7, to talk about uh, the Israelites suffering. And then here in 11, verse 6, the same Hebrew word talking about that wailing and that grief. It was Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. And this is actually what God had promised the Pharaoh, right right back at the start, the first time that Moses goes to see Pharaoh, in chapter 4, verse 22, he says that Israel is my firstborn son. You have not let him go. You refuse to let him go. I will kill your firstborn son. It's a dreadful thing to face this, this justice. But it is fair. It is a just response to what Pharaoh has done. Everyone experiences the consequences of their sin. There's there's no escaping from this justice. Again, it's not something we want to talk about, is it? It's not not a really fun, light topic for a sermon, this. We tend not to think about his character, his his wrath and his judgment. We prefer to focus on other things. And actually, there's plenty of churches that, that are completely moving away from what the Bible teaches because they think it's just not loving to teach this. Some churches change the words of it in Christ alone. They change it from, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They take that verse and they, and they, they change it to this, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And we think, well, that's nice, isn't it? That's a nice thing to do, isn't it? Don't we want to focus more on God's love? Is that an okay thing to do? Surely. It doesn't really feel fair for God to pour out wrath on everyone. What about the innocent Egyptians that were just kind of on the outskirts here, not really involved? What about our our neighbours and friends today that are so kind and so lovely? Is it right that we, we ignore God's wrath? Actually, do you see that God's wrath is an important part of God's love? Because surely we'd agree that that we want God's justice for some things. Vladimir Putin invading the Ukraine. We want justice, don't we? We cry out for justice here. We want God's righteous anger in situations like this where, where injustice is being carried out. And we see that God's anger is a good thing because it is fair. It's not like our anger that is so often not right and tinged by our own sinful hearts. God's anger is perfect, it is right, it is poured out on evil. I guess the trouble is we kind of wish that our sin was treated differently. We don't want the same for us. But the Bible's really clear about this. 
says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. We are all sinners by nature. And that means we earn death. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. The proper punishment for us is to die. So when God claims a life in judgment here, he's right to do that. And we say, well, what about the innocent and the good? Our hearts reveal that there is no one innocent. There is no one righteous. Not even one. We do play down our sin, don't we? We like to compare ourselves to other people and think, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not as bad as that person. But all our sin, however severe, it carries that death penalty. We've turned away from a holy creator God. We've turned away from him. He deserves our praise. He deserves our obedience. And instead, we've gone our own way. We've turned our back on him. We've built up our iniquity. We've built up our sin. We deserve death because we have hated God and his ways. We need to reflect on this. Don't we need to remember this reality? Realise how serious it is to sin against God. The Bible, Jesus says we are slaves to sin. John 8, 34. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's a powerful phrase, isn't it? That is the reality. We are slaves to sin. Sin owns us. It's got us in its grip. Everything, every part of us is affected by it. Even our best actions are not perfectly pure. There's always something in us working sinfully. Paul puts it this way in Romans 7, verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. And what I hate, I do. That's so true, isn't it? We do what we hate. We can't escape from the sin in our lives. We are trapped and enslaved and we are defeated. And there's no escape. We deserve God's judgment. There's no argument about this. Friends, why don't we just pause for just a few seconds. Let's just pause for a few moments and just reflect and maybe can bring our sin before the Lord. Let's just take a moment. So when we're broken by this reality, when we we collapse on our knees in our sin, when we realise we have no hope, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we see in this passage, there is good news. There is a way to be saved. There is a way to be saved. You know, throughout the plagues, we have seen a big difference. The difference that being God's people makes. They've been protected. And the same thing happens in the final plague. Verse 7 of chapter 11. Among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Otherwise, nothing's, nothing's going to happen to them. That's an interesting phrase though. I've been talking about the Egyptian gods uh, over the last few weeks and Anubis was the god of the dead, the god of the afterlife and he had the head of a dog and God says not a dog will bark at the Israelites. Not, not a dog will bark. There is no death coming for his people here. Anubis has no power over them. God is the one in control here. And they will be saved. But it's not just a passive thing. You see they have lots to do. You see that in chapter 12. Just scan through uh, chapter 12, 1 to 10 with me. See what they're asked to do. In verse 2, they're they're told to make this a new month, the first month of their year. This is like a a new era happening. In verse 3, they're they're to take a lamb for their family. Verse 5, they're to 
make sure it's a lamb without defect. Verse 6, take care of them until the 14th day and then slaughter them at twilight. And then take that blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames and then roast the meat. Eat it with bitter herbs. Eat it with bread without yeast. Not leaving any of it till morning, verse 10. Eating it ready to go with your cloak tucked into your bed, into your belt so you can walk freely with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand. That's a strange way to eat your meal, isn't it? Eat it in haste, it says. See, there's a real emphasis on speed, on immediacy to what's happening. When you roast meat, it means you didn't have to, to wait for the water to boil or, or wash up lots of pots and pans. You just roasted it and ate it. Ate it. Bitter herbs, the, the things that, that became such a symbol of their bitter reality of slavery, would have been easy to find. And you could eat them without much preparation. And bread without yeast, you no need to wait for it to rise. You just cook it quickly and you eat it. Eat it quickly, get dressed, get ready to go. Can you imagine that? You get home for dinner and you put your coat on and you hang your, your gloves and you're ready to eat, ready to, to leave, and then you start eating it. It would feel strange. As if you, any moment you, you, you're ready to, to stand up and, and, and leave. They, they, they had to be ready. It was a way of showing that they were trusting that, that rescue was coming. How does that rescue happen? How, do, how are they saved? Look at verse 12. On that same night I'll pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. You see, that's the difference. By sacrificing this perfect lamb, by keeping the blood and daubing it on the doorframe, on the top and the sides, it's showing that this lamb has given its life to save the life of another. The blood has been spilled to save that, the blood of the son. So I said earlier, didn't I, that God judges everyone. And yet, here we see that not everyone is judged. Israel is set free. Israel is rescued and delivered from their suffering. God makes a way for them to be saved. And it's not down to them. They haven't earned any this at all. Their sin has been so apparent, they've been grumbling and moaning, they, they haven't been trusting God. The truth is, they were sinners deserving death. And that's why they had to get the blood. That's why they had to paint it on the doorframe there. Because they were just as guilty as the Egyptians. They needed a substitute, they needed something to die in their place if they were going to avoid death. But can you imagine? Imagine being an Israelite that morning, waking up, to find your son safe and alive and well. You'd be incredibly thankful, wouldn't you? But I think you'd also be maybe sobered by, by what you've escaped from. You'd be aware of the seriousness of God's judgments. But it is an amazing moment here where we see this carried out. God rescuing his people, graciously giving them freedom that he promises. And what's, I think, so amazing is just how clearly this gives us a great picture, a great understanding and maybe a deeper understanding of how he has acted to save us and save us from the slavery to sin that we experience. It's about over a thousand years later and John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus and here's what he says. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come. A few years later in the early church, Peter says this. You know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Perfect lamb. Paul says Christ is our Passover lamb. That's an amazing reality, isn't it, to think about today? Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was the one who was sacrificed as our substitute. Yes, we deserve to die because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus has died in our place. It's as if his blood has been daubed over our lives. It's covering us so that God will pass over us. We will not face God's judgments. What a staggering reality, isn't it? Do you see? We're free from judgment. He has saved us completely. We are redeemed from slavery and death. And not just physical slavery, but slavery from sin. The penalty of death that that our sins deserve. And the amazing thing is he does that while we were still sinners. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, we are safe from God's anger. We have been forgiven. We, We stand completely clean and protected because of Jesus, not because of us. He bore the wrath that our sin deserves. I think our verse in Romans is so helpful, isn't it? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take you back to the start when I asked you how you reacted to that statement, you are a sinner. So often I think our reactions maybe reveal a lack of faith in us. Because we struggle to really believe that we're, we're, we're saved. That we're really loved by God. Maybe it feels more like actually God loves the, the kind of future us. The, the one that's going to be better than we are now. Or even the one that's going to be perfect. Because when Jesus returns we'll be made perfect. Isn't that the one that he loves? How could God love me as I am now? I keep on sinning. I keep messing up. And we fear his anger because it just feels like well, we know we deserve it. Look at this verse. While we were still sinners, before you did anything for God, before you even knew him, he acted to save you. And God loves you as you are right now. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, he loves you as you are. That's, that's the place he's calling you from. He said it is finished on the cross. It's done permanently forever. God's anger has been turned away. We do not face judgment for sin. That is God's grace. That is shown to ungodly sinners like us. He has chosen us and forgiven us and made us new and adopted us into his family. What a wonderful reality that we have in Christ. The most amazing thing is we have been set free from that slavery to sin. Sin doesn't own us anymore. It doesn't rule over us in the same way. Yes, we still feel the consequences. We still struggle. But we have victory over it and God perfects our weak efforts when we get it wrong we can still please God as we as we try to obey as we see as we obey him imperfectly we are God's slaves now that sounds weird doesn't it we don't want to be anyone's slave do we? but actually being God's slave is a good thing it's a glorious thing we belong to him he cares for us 
He looks after us. He doesn't require anything from us to be saved. So we live in grateful response to that. We, we, we obey him. We grow in holiness. We look forward to eternal life. If you're not a Christian here today, then I just plead with you. Maybe you've realized and you feel convicted at the weight of your sin. That God's justice is coming. That actually the only way to be saved is by trusting in Jesus. I encourage you to come on your knees today. Recognizing your weakness. Recognizing that you have nothing. Confessing your sin. Accepting his love. Accepting his forgiveness through his blood. Come and pray. There's always people here at the front to pray with after the service. If you need to pray today, then please come come and do that. There's no shame. And for us as believers, surely this passage leads us to rejoice, doesn't it? To to fill us with with thankfulness. That we don't need to live in fear anymore. We are safe from the wrath of God. We can live confidently. We can live with that security. And that gives us the confidence to kind of say no to our own sinful, selfish desires when they come up. To live for God instead. We belong to him now. He's never going to let us go. What a wonderful, glorious thing. I just want, I've got one very quick thing to say finally. A final brief point. And it's this. That how we remember is important. How we remember this is important. There's loads I haven't touched on here. I'm aware of that. There's lots about the feasts and the festivals that they, they're called to celebrate. To remember. We're going to think about them next week. They kind of follow on in the chapters uh, as well, so we'll think about them then. If you see, there's a real stress on remembering, telling them to your children, recording all that's happened, acting it out again, so you remember that you're saved by grace, that you belong to God. That's what we need to do as well, isn't it? We, we forget God's grace so quickly, we fail to trust Him so easily. That's why we have festivals like Easter to remind us, but it's also why we have a feast to remember. We'll be sharing the Lord's Supper in a few moments. And we take bread and this wine substitute to, to remember Jesus' body and blood. Maybe the blood, maybe there's a deeper significance here, do you see, today. Maybe you've never quite clicked with that before, that as we study the Passover, we realise what it means that, that we share in Jesus' blood. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood on the doorframe was that sign of, of forgiveness, a sign of sacrifice. And we share in this symbol together as a reminder of Jesus' blood shed for us. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could be loved by God. He gave up his life so that we can have life. And we remember that as we share that actually we're united in this. It's not just you are a sinner, it's we are sinners and we are saved together through Jesus' blood. It's not about what we've done, it's what about he's done. But we, we do that together as a church family. We remember his love and grace. And, and there's a moment of, of being solemn where we remember our sin. But surely we need to smile today, rejoice that, that we have been freed from it. Free from his uh, judgment and wrath. We've been shown such grace and love. I feel like I've kind of barely scratched the surface of this passage. There's, there's so much more. But I hope that it's, it's helped you grasp God's love in a deeper way, perhaps. Isn't it staggering to think that he loves us in this way? He loved us so much that he sent his son. Let's pray.
Father, this is a, a big, challenging passage. And it's a sobering one as we see your judgment being carried out. I pray that you'd help us realise again the depths of our sin. That we would come before you, recognising that. But that we would see that even deeper goes that the love that you give us through your son, through his blood. That you have a, you've given us a way out of the slavery of sin. What glorious news that is, Lord. Please lead us to rejoice today as we share this bread and wine together as we as we come together now in song and worship unite us uh, in thankfulness to the gospel amen <laughs>